Oftentimes, when pastors start talking about money, everyone's anxiety level ratchets, ratchets up a little bit. And the reason for that is because we've seen so many pastors talk about money in really unhelpful ways, haven't we? Just this morning, as the men were having breakfast, they decided, they took a vote that they were going to buy me a jet. What's so funny? <laughs> They've got all the money in the, in the church, right? And so they're going to have a fundraiser, and uh, that way we can get the gospel out more. And so, we've seen a lot of people do bad things from pulpits talking about money, haven't we? We see the guys on TV with the handkerchiefs and they're sweating profusely. And if you call in and give them your credit card number and plant a seed, guarantee you'll be blessed. Right? Maybe if you're lucky, they'll send you one of those sweaty handkerchiefs. <laughs> because those are blessed particularly, right? We feel so manipulated in situations like that. We feel like somebody's trying to get one over on us. And even if it's not one of these kind of TV prosperity gospel things, we've been in places in the local church where things maybe get a little tough and sometimes, you know, we're getting a little strained and the pastor will get up and talk about we're not going to be able to keep the lights on if we don't pass the basket again or something like that. And there's this sense of duty or obligation and and, and, and sometimes we talk about tithing like it's membership dues. Seriously. I've met Christians and I've heard testimony where the 10% thing, it's just the dues. Kind of like you pay your dues at the country club or the hunting club or wherever. Come to church, pay your dues and get the benefits, Right? But the thing is, if God is the kind of God who expects membership dues, it's hard for me to know how we give that God our best. If we're wheeling and dealing and negotiating a contract or something. You know, God says, you pitch in your bit and then you can have the rest for yourself. Just make sure I get my cut. If God is in it for his cut, I have a hard time with that. If God is just in it for his cut, that... I'm not sure I want to keep doing what I'm doing. But what if there's something else going on when we look at the Bible and the Bible talks about money? There is something else going on. The question is, what is it? What if it's not about paying dues or giving God his cut? What if it's not about something we do to get something in return? What if it's not about giving God his part so we can do what we want with the rest? What if it's not about obligation? What if it's not about duty? What if it's not about what we do for God so we can get something from God? What if generosity, get ready for this, what if generosity is not about doing something for God, it's about showing the world what God is like? What if God is fundamentally generous? What if he wants to have a generous people so that everyone else can see his overflowing generosity? A people who embody his character will embody his character in every way. So we talk about being gracious. God is gracious. We should be gracious. We talk about being loving. God is loving. We should be loving. 
We talk about holiness. God is holy. His people should be holy. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul wants to say, God is generous. <laughs> Therefore, his people should be generous too. Now that's a big shift, I think, in the way a lot of us think about church budgets. And tithing and passing the basket. And it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God does through us. So the bottom line for the day, out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, generosity isn't for God. It's not what we do for God. It's about becoming like Him. It's about becoming like God embodying his character as we embody his generosity. Now to see how this plays out, we need to look at this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we need to reflect on the context. You may have noticed as we were reading through it that Paul mentions this thing he calls a generous undertaking. He mentions it a couple of times. Uh, he mentions it in verse 6, and he mentions it again in verse 7. So if you have your Bible, you may want to kind of note that. He says, I want to urge... So he's, he's, he's inviting the Corinthians to express generosity, and he's talking about the Macedonians, the Philippians, and how they've expressed generosity. We'll talk more about them in a few minutes. And then he goes on and says, we want to urge Titus that as he has already made a beginning, he should also complete this generous undertaking. So there's this project. Paul calls it a generous undertaking. It's already begun, and he wants them to bring it to completion. And apparently Titus is the guy who's been sent out to do the task. Verse 7, now as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, eagerness, love, so we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. Well, what is this generous undertaking? What is he talking about? Well, to understand what he's talking about, you need to understand that the first century was marked by what we would call racism. Jewish people and Gentile people, different ethnicities, Different races did not like each other. Jewish people thought all the Gentiles were sinners and dogs, and the Gentiles thought the Jewish people were basically atheists because they only had one God, not dozens. They did not get along. They thought the other person was inferior based on their background, and that's, that's what happened. That's the context. In walks Paul. And Paul goes around the Roman Empire north of the Mediterranean, building little groups of people called churches. And in several instances, he talks about how important it is for Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish, Gentile followers of Jesus, to get together and not debate about what they're going to eat because they had different customs when it comes to the menu, and not debate about which day they were going to meet on because they had different expectations about that, but to just stop fussing about small things and get together because nobody else in the empire was doing it. Jesus, he says in Ephesians, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility so that you who are far off, Gentiles, and you who are nearby, Jews, can come together into one household on equal ground at the foot of the cross. That's Paul's gospel in the first century. Now, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do things. It's, right? You can say stuff all the time, 
The question is, are you ready, ready to put, well, literally for this, where, your money where your mouth is? <laughs> because Paul has said, hey, here's how we're going to show Gentile solidarity with the Jews in Jerusalem. We're going to take up a collection because the saints in Jerusalem are having a rough go at it. They're experiencing hardships. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. And so Paul says, I'm going to go around through the rest of the empire, Greece, over towards uh, Rome, and take up a collection. Philippi, Corinth, we're going to take up this collection, and then we're going to march it back to Jerusalem in this world marked by deep ethnic tension and conflict. The Christian Gentiles are going to give a whole lot of money to the Jewish Christians to say, we're a part of the same family, we're on your team, and we're here to look out for you in your poverty. And in that world, that was crazy. It's crazy today, probably. <laughs> but in the ancient world, deeply divided along ethnic lines, this is revolutionary. And Paul calls it a generous undertaking because he wants them to express generosity across an ethnic line that wasn't typically crossed in the ancient world. Let the gravity of that settle for a minute. It's a, this is a big deal. No wonder he had to work so hard <laughs> to get people to catch the vision. So he's going to send Titus. They've initiated this collection, this generous undertaking to show the world what a unified, multi-ethnic people of God looks like. Paul says, let's bring it to completion. But how's he going to persuade them to bring this generous undertaking to completion? How's he going to talk them into doing something so countercultural, so unusual, so atypical? How's he going to get Gentiles to give money to support the church in Jerusalem? How will he persuade them? Not with a command. Not with a call to duty. Not with an insistence on obligation. Instead, he paints a picture of the generosity of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's where he goes. He wants to talk about the generosity of God revealed in Jesus Christ because for Paul, generosity isn't for God. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. It's what God does in us to reproduce His character in us. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that. He wants us to see it too. So he starts not with a command, but with a vision of God. Take a look at verse 8. I do not say this as a command. <laughs> right? He's not trying to guilt trip them. Come on, it won't work if you don't help out. Come on, we can't keep the lights on if you don't send some money back to Jerusalem. Come on, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do. There's no arm twisting. There's no manipulation. There's no obligation. There's no duty. There's no command. There's simply Jesus. 
I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love, right? Because if we only put something in the basket when it comes around because we feel obligated, then we're not feeling love, right? It's hard to feel obligation and overflowing love at the same. Well, I'm gonna, I don't really want to this week, but I'm going to throw a little something in there because it's my duty. He doesn't go that route, does he? He's like, I want to see how much you love each other. <laughs> I want to see whether or not you're genuine, whether there's this authentic, real, lively, overflowing passion for Jesus and one another. Does that characterize your church? I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. And here's why. Verse 9. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about the cross all the time. Rarely do we talk about the cross as an act of generosity. Maybe we should do that more often. Jesus, Paul says, was rich. And just think about that for a second. Think about the richest guy in the world. Some of us are up here putting these chairs together, and somebody mentioned the Amazon guy, Jeff Bezos, right? If that's how you say his name. Who knows how much money that guy has? <laughs> He's one of the wealthy. Bill Gates, Bezos, all these CEO types have got more money in their pockets than most people collectively in, a, in some countries throughout history will have. It's stunning the millions and billions of dollars these guys have. Their wealth, wealth is a drop in the bucket compared to the infinite value of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take all their stock options, all, the, all of it, the value of the companies, every prime membership. <laughs> Pennies compared to the value, the richness the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, who's he talking about? He's talking about the one who owns the cosmos. Anything you can see in a telescope and beyond because he made it with his voice. Forget bank accounts. He owns the stars. Forget status. What's a CEO when you're enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? What's corporate power when every atom in the universe stays in place because you desire it. When Paul talks about the richness of Jesus, it's difficult to get our minds around that concept. Because Jesus is of infinite worth and value and power and majesty and glory. And every dollar on the planet is less than a penny 
compared to what Jesus has. And he defines generosity with his life because though he has the name above every name. He descended to be born in a stable, in a feeding trough. Some of you own feeding troughs. And you would never put your children in them. <laughs> well, some of you would. Alright, that's fair enough, right? <laughs> the one guy will. Most of us wouldn't put our kids... Here's the one who speaks and brings the world into existence, who plants and trees and fish and birds, all these things. And, you know, some of us have been reading Revelation together on Wednesday nights and, and we've read about the, 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 the Lamb of God enthroned on the throne of heaven, right? Right there in the middle of the person of God and everything in creation brings its praise and its glory and its, and its honor to Him. Everything in existence owes its being to Him. And he commits to poverty. Born in a backwater town outside of Jerusalem in a stable feeding trough with shepherds who are the poorest of poor attending him. I mean, talk about a mo movement. Right? Most of us want to climb the ladder or at least get by. Jesus says, forget the ladder I will crash my way into your world <laughs> from the throne of heaven to the feeding trough of Bethlehem. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Not because it does him any favors. Not because he gets anything out of it. Paul says, for your sake. This is his expression of full, thoroughgoing, other-oriented love. This is Jesus. Though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor. And why did he do it? Not for kicks. Not so he could have a bunch of servants. Not so he could kind of come down here and boss us all around. So that you could participate in his wealth. That's what it says. By his poverty, you might become rich. But what does that mean? We've already said that the wealth of Jesus isn't really about dollar bills. It's about the fact that everything has its being in his life. That he sustains all things. That he is the source of all sufficiency. That he's the source of all life. That he is the one in whom we find our fullness. And so when he talks about us coming to participate in Jesus Riches. He's talking about becoming fully human. He's talking about becoming the person that God designed you to be because you've come into a new relationship of life-giving love with the Father through the Son, and the Spirit of God now dwells in your body, transforming you and changing you from someone who drags God's name through the mud into someone who honors God consistently, day in and day out, not only with finances, but with the relationships in church life and work life and everything. All of it. Jesus wants to bring us into that experience of his richness. 
But it's not about accounts. It's about being rightly related to the God who made us and loves us. And the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. The purpose of that self-giving love for Jesus is transformation. Work of grace. So that we can begin to reproduce, to, re, to embody his character. That's why generosity isn't about our obligation. We're not going to talk about duty, obligation, membership dues. That's not what we're talking about. The question for us as we reflect on the next three weeks, today and the next two weeks, to what extent are we embodying the generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he came to do. Not just for us, but for the world. Because if the world is going to see the beauty of the generosity of God, it will not see that anywhere other than in the church. And if the church is characterized by stinginess and a lack of generosity, well, what does that tell the world about our God? Speaking of that, when I was uh, in college, I worked at this barbecue place. And uh, some of the guys who worked there used to wait tables at different places. And they said, you never wanted the Sunday afternoon shift. Never. Church crowd. You know why? Cheap tippers. The Christians are the least generous ones. Guys boozing it up on Friday night, really good tippers. <laughs> That's where you want to be. The church folks, uh-uh. <laughs> no, no. Which invites us to ask the question, how well are we embodying the generosity of God? When we show up with our church clothes and leave somebody a gospel tract instead of a tip. Share the gospel by all means, but don't be stingy while you're at it. If you're going to share the gospel, you probably should leave a bigger tip. <laughs> Do something to commend it. That's the thing here, right? The gospel of God's generosity is about other-oriented love. It's about taking the focus off of myself and turning it on to love for Jesus and love for others. It's not about doing something for God so that we can have favors or membership perks. It's about becoming like Him because His generosity comes into me and goes out through me. It's about reproducing his character. And the key word in this passage for that character is generosity. So Paul wants to see a generous people come to care, a generous spirit come to characterize the people to whom he writes. We've already hinted at this, but we need to make it explicit. He's not just talking about money. This is one of the key things, I think. One reason a lot of our sermons on money fall so short is because we focus on one thing instead of talking about how it fits into the rest of our lives. So notice what Paul says in verse 7. I want to see a generous people, but before we even start talking about the money, let's talk about the way you talk to each other. <laughs> Are you generous in speech with one another? Verse 7 we're doing this generous undertaking, so now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness, and in love, before he even asks for some time to pass the basket kind of things, he says, let's talk about 
the way we speak to one another. Let's talk about our love for one another. Let's talk about our faith. Are we generous of faith? Are we overflowing with our trust for God? Are we generous in speech? Or do we look for every opportunity to cut somebody down when we get it? You know, I was thinking about this this morning. And uh, I was reminded that we, because I just registered to vote in this county. Um, <laughs> thing when you're a Methodist preacher and you move around all over the place, you've got to register to vote every time you go. So the vote's coming up, coming up on the deadline. We got it in. And uh, I remi- was reminded that John Wesley had some things to say about how people on different, with different political views talk to each other. Did you know that? Here's an example of generosity of speech. He says, there's an election coming up, so I want to remind the Methodists to vote, so go do it. For the person you judge most worthy, not for fee or reward. Right? So don't, don't let anybody buy your vote. <laughs> That's what Wesley said. Number three, or number two, and this is really where we're going, he said, I quote, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. Ooh, John Wesley would not have liked 2016, would he? <laughs> Speak no evil of the person they voted against. Generous speech, maybe. He goes on. To take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Ever had your spirit sharpened against those who are on in a different party than you are? Oh, Wesley, you done quit preaching and going to meddling now, brother. You're like, let's go back to talking about money. This is very uncomfortable, Pastor. <laughs> you know? But it just goes to show that generosity isn't just about finances, it's about everything, isn't it? You know, can I have a charitable political disagreement with somebody without thinking they're the spawn of Satan? You wouldn't know it from the way some Christians talk. Would you? So what does it look like for God to reproduce his character in me in terms of generous speech? Knowledge, faith, love. All those pieces, right? It's hard to even talk about money if you don't have those other things in mind. Because generosity isn't just about one part of my life, it's about my whole life. Having God's character reproduced in me isn't just, well, I got it in this section, but not that section. Well, God, you can have control of my life over here, but not over here. God, I'll let you have my life on Sundays, but when it comes to the voting booth, it's all me. We never say that to God, but we act that way, don't we? Sometimes. Generosity is all of life. If we're talking about how God reproduces his generous character in us, it has to do with the way we speak to each other, the way we treat other people. It's about relationships, isn't it? You know, the, the kids. Anybody know about generosity? Well, I helped my grandmother my, when she was sick. With my, I helped my parents and my grandmother when she was sick. Yes! That's a generous spirit. And if you can be generous in that area, chances are can be generous when it comes to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not just going to talk about one section of life, we're going to talk about all of life. And this is where the joy piece comes in. That's where Paul goes with it. 
Remember the Philippians, the Macedonians? They were suffering. They were afflicted. They were persecuted because they were followers of Jesus. And still, Paul says, they were abundant in joy, and out of their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He went to the poorest people in the whole empire and said, hey, can you help the folks in Jerusalem out? (laughs) And they did. And it was their joy. Because see, here's the thing. When we talk about the offering and we do the manipulation strategies and the arm twisting strategies and the I need a jet strategies and the sow a seed and you'll get blessed strategies and everybody feels manipulated and everybody can see right through it. It's not authentic, it's not real, and it's not holy. And I don't know anybody who's ever experienced joy in those kind of settings. However, we have tasted the joy when we've been in a situation and we've had the opportunity to do something for somebody that they wouldn't have had anything if the Lord hadn't worked through us in that spot. Maybe it was on a mission trip. Maybe it was on the street corner. We have the opportunity to speak a generous word into someone's life when their life is falling apart. The opportunity to act generously, to build a home for a family in another country when they are living in a cardboard box, literally living in a cardboard box. Or to hold an orphan in Florida or Costa Rica. Those moments are moments of generosity, aren't they? And every one of you who've been there and who've done it can say it was a moment of joy. And it was a moment of joy because God was showing his life and character through your body. And that's what Paul wants the, the, the Corinthians to experience. The Philippians already have. He wants the Corinthians to experience, and he wants us to experience it too. But we'll never get there if we treat generosity like it's an obligation, like something we do for God so that he'll do for us. He gets his cut, we get our cut. It doesn't work that way, does it? There's no joy in anybody in people getting their cuts. <laughs> There is joy when God shows up and says, I'm going to work through you. I'm going to change the world through you. Just give yourself to me, and I will change the world through you. That's how we become like God. Paul says it works out two ways for the Macedonians. They're in extreme poverty, and he says they give according to their means. That's not really clear. It's not clear to me how that works out, because if you're in poverty, you typically don't have means, right? (laughs) But somehow they give in proportion to what they have. But then he goes on and says, and they even gave beyond their means. Really? I mean, these are people who are being persecuted and who are poor. Not only are they giving in proportion to what they have, they're sacrificing something to give beyond what they have. And you know what? You never sacrifice to give beyond when you're in one of these this-for-that deals, do you? My cut, your cut, is not usually a sacrificial kind of thing. You only give sacrificially when you know you get a deeper joy from it. When you know God is showing up to do something unique in your life. So think about what that may be like. 
Maybe it means giving up a week of vacation to take your kids on a mission trip. That's a sacrifice, isn't it? I'm going to give up a week of laying on the beach so they're going to make sure that my kids get to hold an orphan in their arms in another country and know that they can be instruments of God's love to other people. Not your typical budget sermon, is it? But it's precisely what Paul has in mind. Precisely. This is how we follow Jesus and change the world, friends. We embody his generosity. Not because somebody told us to, not because it's a command, not because it's a duty, not because it's a moral obligation, simply because we are so filled and overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ in the abundant presence of his spirit that that just comes out all over the place. In speech, in relationships, and in funding the mission of the church. That's how Jesus changes the world. Not by a bunch of people who feel obliged, but by reproducing his generous character in our hearts. Generosity is not what we do for God. It's how we become like God for the life of the world he has made.